0: Hey there, where have you been? Welcome to the No Jet Stress podcast, the show that helps you maintain optimal health and peak performance as a road warrior, no matter how much you travel. I'm your host, Christopher Babioli, traveller wellness advocate, nutritional therapist, author and ex-flight attendant of 20 years at British Airways, one of the UK's largest airline. Welcome to the No Jet Stress podcast. I'm really pleased to be able to invite and have on the program, James Hewitt, who is a human performance scientist, who is an avid cyclist, and has some very interesting distinctions about how to improve the human condition. James, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you uh, with us to share your insights with this audience, particularly as we're looking, or I'm particularly interested in ways that we can use the insights that you might have to help people understand how they can take those insights and use them in the context of being a healthy, well-adjusted business traveller. So thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thanks, Chris. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today because my aspiration is to be a healthy, well-adjusted business traveller as well. So (laughs) maybe maybe I can take a dose of my own medicine while we're talking and uh,
0: learn something along the way. (laughs) I think we've got lots to talk about. And yes, the, the core excitement is this idea. And I was thinking about it before coming live with you is that, you know, you're a performance scientist. And one of the one of the tenets that I've had within the field of what I do in terms of helping people manage jet lag is understanding that the best solution they're going to have to help themselves do that is going to be an individual solution. Hmm. One that they are a proponent of, that they actually put in place and that they act on. So for me to have someone like you on board today, it's really important because human performance is about the human being and what they're able to bring to bear in their life to make those changes and make those things happen. And as someone who studied it quite specifically, and also I know that you really like travel yourself, it's kind of like, yes, this is someone who's got two sides of of the coin and can inform us with the science as much as inform us with some of the practices that he undertakes and the stuff that he ignores and bring it together. So hopefully listeners, I tend to say viewers at this point, I don't know why, but maybe I will have some viewers by the end of this, that are listeners and viewers can actually chunk this down into what works for them and how to bring it to bear. But before I get carried away and too excited, can you, in your own words, give us a brief history about um, how you got to where you are today and uh, where you're going with the the kind of work that you're doing?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, I think on the topic of travel, because I know that's very relevant to your podcast, I think my passion for travel started very young. So my dad got a job with an American company, when I was about three and uh, and so actually no no way than that sorry when I was about six months old and then we, we moved to the states and lived there for about three years something like that so and came back you know just after when I was three so from quite a young age I was exposed to intercontinental travel and and I just loved it I mean this was back in the 80s you know, I'm dating myself now where you know as a little kid you could go in the cockpit, you know, you were invited up there. Yeah. And, you know, we, I think I was spoiled from a young age because, you know, this was back in the day when travel budgets maybe weren't so closely scrutinised. <laughs> and so, you know, I was turning left from quite a young age when I, <laughs> when I boarded. And, you know, it was just, it was exciting. I just remember, I can still remember vividly the first time that I went into a plane cockpit. Once the plane was, was cruising, they invited me up there as a, as a young kid and just looking out. Kind of at this incredible scene, you know the blue skies, the clouds beneath us, all of these buttons and all of these different dials and screens, and you know as a kid I was fascinated, and to be honest I continue to be. I've still got a kind of amateur passion for for aviation now, and um, but going alongside that was this interest from a very early early age in human performance. And i wouldn't have articulated like that like that for a long time but even in that early experience of going into a plane cockpit and looking around and seeing these two guys because it was mostly guys you know back in the 80s and i, I was just fascinated by the idea that they were able to pilot control this aircraft that they knew what every dial and every button in that environment did and. From that point, I started to become fascinated about what human beings were capable of, particularly in quite demanding circumstances. Now, that led to an interest in space as well. When I was a kid for quite a long time, I wanted to be an astronaut, actually, and we lived in the States, as I mentioned, you know, in the uh, kind of early to mid 80s and the there was still a lot of interest in space and NASA and the shuttle launches at that time. And I remember sitting at home with my parents you know, with my mom particularly when my dad was at work, and watching shuttle launches and just being fascinated again by what humans were capable of in these really demanding environments. So there's always been that, that interest there in both travel and human performance. And eventually that started to be expressed personally through my interest in sport and uh, I figured out quite early I wasn't very good at team sports but I found my niche in some very obscure sports and it was always about things with wheels for me and so quite early on uh, I found this sport called inline speed skating a very obscure sport but I ended up being quite good at that and represented Great Britain for several years and, and won quite a few medals as a junior that transitioned into road cycling a bit of track cycling as well, and I was fortunate enough to, to ride and race full-time for several years, kind of into the, uh, you know, the, uh, the mid-2000s. But along that journey, one of the things I realised was that I actually enjoyed the training, probably if I'm honest, more than the competition. And I wasn't the most talented athlete, but I was a very early adopter of technologies, trying to understand what approaches were working best for me. And it was a very strange time in the sport back then, because to be honest, you know, performance enhancing drug use had been rife in that sport for many years and as a consequence of that it had held up the development of training science there were still some scientists doing some good work but that wasn't necessarily being translated into what people did on their bike and partly that was because for many years too many people not everyone but too many people basically were able to rely on his performance-enhancing substances to elicit the adaptations that they were looking for, rather than training and trying to get the most out of their own genetic potential. And I decided not to go down that path. So very early on, I was trying to understand what was working best for me and started really informally coaching. I wouldn't have called it coaching at that time. It was just people who observed what I was doing, were curious about it, wondered about how they could apply it to their own training and racing. And and so as a consequence of that, I started to share that knowledge. When I realized I wasn't going to be a great pro cyclist, I went back to university. I studied sports science. Eventually I set up my own coaching business and it wasn't as simple as that, but that's the for shortened version. And most of the people that I worked with were business people. I had a few clients who were professional athletes, mainly cyclists, as I mentioned, some very good amateurs who were aspiring to be aspiring to be pros. But the, the bread and butter of my client base were uh, people who had very demanding careers in London, where I was based at the time, who also wanted to be great cyclists.
0: Right.
1: And right. during the time of coaching them, I realised that unless I could account for the load associated with their working life, I couldn't plan their cycling training effectively. And so I began to try to apply tools and frameworks from sports science to understand... What I describe as knowledge work, because most of these people thought for a living; they were thinkers, architects, management consultants, finance professionals, etc. And this sparked this a curiosity trying to understand this very difficult to quantify world. It's a slight tangent, but one of the nice things about cycling is that we can determine your maximum output. It's quite easy to quantify with something called a VOT max test, for example. But the maximum output of a knowledge worker is incredibly difficult to quantify but that challenge intrigued me and in the end i started to try and conceptualize knowledge work as a cognitive endurance activity in a similar way that you might think about cycling as a physical endurance activity and eventually i ended up biasing and focusing the vast majority of my work on knowledge work eventually i went back to university and i'm actually just completing my phd at the moment looking at specifically what i describe as always on knowledge work so the difficulties that we have with long working hours struggling to switch off our resources being depleted and how that influences our well-being and performance and what we can do about it yeah. so really today that's the focus of my work and research it's all about knowledge work as a cognitive endurance activity i've been fortunate enough to be able to continue to travel all over the world to share some of those insights to work with clients to gather data and there's really a mixture of things that i do i describe it as consultancy communication and then also the original research and um, but continue to have this fascination with what human beings are capable of absolutely love travel and flying and uh, but unfortunately rarely get to see in the cockpit these days thanks to all <laughs> the, the regulations that we've got
0: yeah yeah that that is definitely a, a bummer But there's a lot, a hell of a lot to unpack in just that little insight and snippet that you've given us there. One of the things that you mentioned quite specifically there was, obviously, your move away from the the abuse of steroids and things of that nature, so into the sort of like legal things that people can do. With your permission, I'd like to actually start there as a basis of a conversation as to what would you think would be the kind of takeaways... That anyone who's a traveller should seriously consider that are legal in order to help themselves be a a better, well-adjusted uh, traveller. As we've said, so far. what can
1: you take? You just want to get straight into the good stuff, don't you, Chris?
0: <laughs> I couldn't resist it. I just couldn't resist yeah. it, and I'm sure you probably get that a lot, but I just couldn't resist it because you are the man to talk to about this. In my yeah, opinion. So,
1: well, we might. I think my view on kind of you know substances and supplementation and, and these kind of approaches is heavily conditioned by a lecturer that i had very early on in my undergraduate degree he's a guy called professor ron Morn. he's really a legend in in performance nutrition you could describe it as and i remember after one of my early lectures that i had as an undergraduate he rarely uh, did lectures for undergrads i don't think he really liked them to be honest <laughs> but uh, he did a lecture all about on nutrition there were some aspects of supplementation and i remember i went up to him afterwards because i was always really curious about legal supplementation as a cyclist and so i said to him you know what, what do you think about this and what do you think about that and he just turned to me and i wish i could imitate his his accent but he kind of said in quite a gruff tone it essentially words to the effect that um if it really works it's banned. and 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 so it's an interesting it's an interesting one but there's a lot of truth in that statement, because if you really unpack the evidence around a lot of, kind of supplementation approaches, if it really is effective, particularly for the things that we're talking about in the context of knowledge work and, and travel, like maintaining alertness for very long periods, for example, overcoming some of the decreases in attention and vigilance that are associated with fatigue, then really the most effective things are illegal like amphetamines for example you, know, you want to talk about kind of you know aviation again now it's not allowed in many air forces around the world but in some they are still allowed to take certain uh, varieties essentially of amphetamine in uh, certain combat uh, contexts to keep right. people awake essentially and it does work but the downsides are enormous however there are a few things that have got a really good evidence base behind them That I would recommend, and the first one is is boring as anything. It's a good old (laughs) caffeine, but caffeine's super interesting in many ways, and it's highly it's highly researched. It's ubiquitous, but it's surprisingly effective at improving cognitive performance. And there is a bit of debate about this, even caffeine, and I'll talk about that debate in a moment. And in terms of caffeine and cognitive performance, but uh, I wanted just to mention again to try and make this point that if it's banned. If it really works, it's probably banned, but also to dispel some of the myths around some of these substances which maybe exist in the grey areas. So I'm aware that quite a few people do use some stimulants like modafinil, for example, which is sometimes called Provigil, as a way to potentially try and enhance cognitive performance, maintain alertness, combat fatigue. Clinically, it's used mainly in the treatment of narcolepsy but actually in surveys it's used really highly a lot of people use it as a so-called smart drug often students use it for studying for example uh, and obviously that's strongly contraindicated people really shouldn't be doing that but nonetheless they did a really interesting study where they compared the cognitive performance enhancing effects of modafinil ready, uh, relative to caffeine now you'd think that you know because it comes in a little box in kind of you know it's it's capsules it's pharmaceutical it must be better but actually, the study indicated that caffeine and modafinil weren't any more effective than each other. Actually, caffeine did as good a job. But the nuance is this. If you look a lot at a lot of the studies on caffeine and cognitive performance enhancement, few of them have measured what's called the recent sleep history of the participants. So they've not measured in the days or weeks leading into the study how much they've been sleeping or not, and what their sleep debt is. Somehow, but it's it's rare. So there's kind of a bit of an open question. Not everyone would agree with this, but there is an open question in my view and among quite a few sleep researchers that we don't know exactly whether this cognitive performance enhancing effect that we're seeing with caffeine is necessarily truly enhancing above your normal, or is actually maybe just restoring cognitive performance to a level equivalent to maybe what it would have been if you didn't have that sleep debt. Interesting. So if that makes sense. So. There's other contexts where it it genuinely is performance enhancing, I believe. So the effects on athletic performance are very clear, for example, in terms of potentially increasing time to exhaustion. So how long it takes, how long, how hard and how long it can go for. And there's other effects, which are very well, very well described, but that cognitive performance enhancing effect is, is a bit open to debate now that really doesn't make that much difference in the context of business travel in some ways because the vast majority of business travellers will be carrying some level of sleep debt and some level of fatigue. and We know very clearly that in that case it does seem to either restore or perhaps even enhance cognitive performance. Again, things like attention, reaction time, fundamental cognitive abilities which then support these higher order cognitive abilities, like being able to focus and resist distraction in a meeting, for example. And also what's described as cognitive processing speed, which you can measure as speed of accuracy of response, which also is quite a good predictor of general mental ability and and subsequently job performance. But when we use caffeine, often many of us use more of it than we need to. Now, again, there's some nuance in this based on recent sleep history. And so this is all just rules of thumb. I also really want to point out at this point, I'm not a medical doctor. This isn't medical advice. I'm not recommending that anyone follow any of these protocols or take caffeine. If you're curious about any of these dosages, you know, this is speak to your an appropriately qualified professional. Basically, what I'm doing is for informational purposes, translating what the research says. I sure. just wanted to get that disclaimer in there for everybody. But basically the the research that I'm familiar with seems to indicate that we often use more caffeine than we need to. To benefit from those cognitive performance enhancing effects. And it seems that you can enjoy those benefits with a dose as low as 0.3 milligrams per kilogram of body mass per hour. Now, for me, that would actually be a pretty small dose of coffee. So quite a weak coffee, maybe a filter coffee in a pretty small cup. So I'm talking not bigger than, an, not much bigger than an espresso size cup, an hour and me being like about 72 kilos. So it's really not a lot. So the, the the fundamental message there, the take home, is caffeine little and often. And unfortunately, one of the things that people do that ends up impairing their performance a huge amount is that they drink too much coffee too often, and then that ends up really disrupting their sleep because caffeine has a very long half life. Now the interesting thing about caffeine is that its average half life—that's the time that it takes for the concentration in your bloodstream to reduce by fifty percent—is about five hours. But the interesting thing is that if you actually, like a lot of research, they'll publish the mean, they'll publish the average. Yeah. But it'll probably be normally distributed. And so you've got people at either ends. And it seems that the caffeine half-life can actually vary between a couple of hours up to nine hours. So some people are much faster metabolizers than others. Yeah. But a really simple starting point for performance enhancement for many people would be to adopt a little and often approach to caffeine, stop as early as possible and then um, see how that improves sleep. But we won't talk about sleep for now. I'll stick to the I'll stick right. to the supplement story. All right. So there's this caffeine. I've got some other ideas as well. I mean, Please. I'm aware that I've been talking quite a lot, but no, 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 I can no, carry on. If,
0: uh, um, <laughs> well, okay. If, <laughs> let me just ask one question about the caffeine then. Because, and I, I, I don't know if it adds color to what you're describing, but uh, maybe you'll set me straight. Because this idea is that caffeine is a natural antagonist to adenosine. Correct. And therefore, yep. is it the fact that if we're not necessarily abiding by that measure of 0.3 mil per, per pound per kilogram of body weight? A
1: kilogram. That's right. Kilogram yeah. So-
0: of body weight. Therefore, the propensity to, my understanding is that you actually, start, if you over caffeinate, you actually get the receptor pulling back further into the cell. And therefore, you want to add more caffeine to get the same effect. And therefore, You're almost like you're trying to fight a battle that you're losing by the fact that you're adding more caffeine and becoming more over caffeinated, which is causing the cell to respond in a certain way. Hence, people have recommended uh, it's nice to sort of like perhaps have caffeine for about three weeks and come off for it for like a week or add in decaf there to sort of like give those receptors a time to sort of like come back to the of the cell and therefore for it to be more effective. Would you would you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So that all comes under this umbrella of this idea of tolerance and tolerance to caffeine. And and so again, the evidence does indicate that we can build up a tolerance to caffeine. But one of the interesting things is that even if we build up a tolerance to caffeine, it still seems to work. So we still seem to get benefits. So if you're just looking for benefits, I, in my view, I don't think the evidence is particularly strong to suggest that kind of coming off caffeine and then coming back on is going to give you an extra benefit when you right. come on, right. potentially. However, anecdotally, and I think with some evidence, quite a lot of us have experienced that. I certainly have, where there's been times where I've kind of come off caffeine and then, you know, have that one double espresso, I feel like my brain kind of wakes up again. So, so there might be something there. I mean, I, my view is it's healthy to adopt rhythms in life that ensure that we're not too dependent on anything. And, and so I think that it makes sense to me that maybe taking a break from caffeine occasionally might be good, even if it was just behaviourally and psychologically, to remind yourself that you don't need this thing, And um, as much as there's some kind of a, um, uh, effect at the level of the receptors in our brain. But you are correct in in, in saying that essentially what caffeine is doing, and the shape, the molecular structure of caffeine is very similar to this molecule called adenosine. And during the day, concentrations of adenosine increase. You can imagine it like a sand timer filling up. And, and that's responsible for this increase in sleep pressure that we feel. But what caffeine does is block those receptor sites. So the adenosine doesn't connect up and give us that sense of sleepiness, that increasing sleep pressure. So, But in terms of whether we should avoid it, I mean, to be honest, like I drink it all the time, and I've had periods of time where I've not for you know months. But at the moment, I'm in a block of time where I've got loads to do, and I just like it. As you know, I like to get up and have my have my coffee. But for me, finding a decaf coffee that I like was a real game changer. And you know, one of the there's various different decaffeination methods, but one of my favourites is CO2 filtration, carbon dioxide and then also the Swiss water method, which are minimally... There's very few chemicals involved in that process, So, and it still gets rid of a lot of the caffeine. But I think it probably is not a bad thing to take a break. And also, again, recognising that effect in terms of the half-life and the fact it can vary between people. There's a lot of people that I've worked with who are convinced that caffeine doesn't affect them, but they've just got used to that impairment in sleep and actually when they've dialed back caffeine and even eliminated it, they've noticed significant benefits to their to their sleep, particularly how long it takes them to get to sleep. Um, so I think it's worth doing that experiment and cycling off and then see how you feel. And And then maybe it's something that you'll, you'll continue to do.
0: Yeah, great, great, great advice. And then when I think of the business travel in particular, they're normally always over-caffeinated. And before we got a hand a handle on the the more exotic or more up to date tools that people can look at to manage uh, jet lag and traveler well-being i think the um, the default mode was okay what can i take as a pill and in fact this, this is like a segue to my story about cephalon cephalon was a pharmaceutical company who in 2010 wrote to the fda if i remember correctly to try and get provigil Uh, put, um, uh, uh, um, agreed to as a cure for jet lag on the basis of help people stay alert. And all they did was fly people on a private jet to France and then prove that they had the capacity to stay awake. And my argument back then was, well, jet lag's not just about attention, so you cannot, anyway, they got refused, but that was my understanding of ProVigil. So to hear the story come around now for it to be no better than caffeine. It's quite interesting and probably uh, a good call on the, on the FDA side for not actually um, um, allowing it to be the poster child for jet lag when it's only as effective as caffeine. So that was That was that was interesting.
1: Very interesting. I wasn't familiar with that story, but that's that's fascinating. I would have liked to have been a participant in that study though. I wouldn't have minded (laughs) jet flight to France. I wouldn't have minded. (laughs) Sure, there might have been some bias. It's like, so if we say this works, can we go again?
0: (laughs) Or it doesn't work. Can we try it again? No. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But please do continue. So caffeine was 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 one of those items. Yeah.
1: The other one is an interesting one because I'd say it's probably creatine. So I take very few supplements so uh, i wouldn't class caffeine as a supplement you know i I lived in france for about seven years until a couple of years ago and it's basically a food group in france (laughs) but uh, so so but i do use caffeine and i the only uh, i only use a couple of other supplements but one of those is creatine and Creatine is often thought about in an athletic context for good reason, It's, but it's actually one of the most well-researched and effective supplements. There's over 500 peer-reviewed publications looking at various aspects of of creatine supplementation. and There's really strong evidence that it's associated with various aspects of improved performance in both athletic populations as well as less well-trained people. But there's some really interesting emerging evidence that indicates that creatine might be relevant for cognitive performance too and particularly in the context of business travel, where you might be sleep-deprived. Now again, this is emerging. I wouldn't say there's been enough studies to say this definitively. Um, But in terms of the cognitive performance aspects, we can see that creating supplementation for several days can reduce mental fatigue. Um, when that's tested in certain ways, in this uh, people doing mathematical uh, challenges, for example, in in, in one study, um, there was another study that it showed um, it was associated with improvements in working memory, uh, intelligence, cognitive processing speed. Again, that uh, that measure that I mentioned earlier. But then there was one specifically that looked at creatine supplementation for seven days after people experienced sleep deprivation, and what they found was that the creatine supplementation was associated with. Uh, reduced decreases in cognitive performance in uh, choice reaction time is balance and mood state yeah so again it's weird wording it's clunky wording but this is how studies end up getting worded because again similarly to the caffeine as i said there's a difference between kind of reducing the decrease so making a, a down a downside less worse than like this genuine enhancement
0: right so essentially
1: right. what what they were showing was that um creatine improved cognitive performance in response to sleep deprivation so when you're sleep deprived we expected to you expect to see these decreases in things like choice reaction time so that's a cognitive test that measures something called inhibitory control. So technically that's our ability to resist preponent responses, but essentially it provides a building block to help us to stay focused and resist distraction is one way to think about it. Balance is obviously really important. That's actually being able to balance physically. And then mood state, positive mood, which we know is associated with lots of other positive outcomes as well, and even supports cognitive performance in its own right. So when you're sleep deprived, you see decreases in all those factors. And when people supplemented with creatine, those decreases weren't as big. Um, Now, the dose in that was a bit higher than maybe I would take daily, but nonetheless it's those doses, the research would indicate that it's still well tolerated. So I take creatine pretty much every day and for the benefits physically, because it's a very high energy molecule and it is naturally occurring, it's synthesising the body, you can get it from food sources. But the evidence, in my view, is pretty clear that it's safe, it's well-tolerated, simple creatine monohydrate, and um, in my view, there's good evidence that that's associated with these cognitive and physical benefits, and some of them potentially very relevant to business travellers as well. So caffeine and creatine, those two C's, would would be very high up on my list in terms of legal
0: supplementation for performance enhancement. Join us in part two for the concluding recommendations and much more. Until then... Wherever you go, farewell.